Hello and welcome to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. I'm Susanna Streeter. I'm the Senior Investment and Markets Analyst here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. And I'm with Sarah Coles, our Senior Personal Finance Analyst. Sarah, finally, it feels like spring has sprung. I'm particularly happy about the days becoming longer after the dark, dark days of winter. Once the clocks go forward this weekend, although annoyingly on Mother's Day, just to give me one hour's less sleep when it really should be my day for a very rare lion. Yes, absolutely. Although I do remember when the kids were really tiny, it was one day of the year when you could sort of be there and the kids would come burst in and you think, well, I suppose it's technically seven o'clock this time. We're not quite full of the joys of spring and there's definitely no enthusiasm for spring cleaning. We might just empty the greenhouse of the patio furniture that we wedged in there during the storm. So, Yes, we all did. But it is that time of year when we tend to think about gardening and growing. But this year, on a wider scale, there is going to be a lot less of that going on because of the situation in Ukraine. Yes, Ukraine grows an awful lot of the world's grains, including wheat. And although the impact of the conflict on crops, quite rightly, is less in focus than the horrible human cost of the invasion, over time it's increasingly going to take a toll, both on the farmers and on those who rely on them. It means far less can be planted during the spring planting season. And if the fight continues throughout the summer, there could be knock-on effects on the farmer's ability to look after their crops or even to harvest them in the autumn. And this is a major concern. It's a concern for Ukraine itself and it's also going to have an impact on its ability to export. Yeah, Ukraine has traditionally been known as the breadbasket of Europe, but faced with the invasion, that basket could be very sparse this year. And the next few weeks could be make or break if planting is seriously disrupted. And that's why we're taking a look at global food prices in this episode of the podcast and the impact on food businesses in an episode we're calling Commodities going against the grain. We'll be speaking to George Phillips, Commercial Director of leading food distributor Wannis International Foods, to find out what the company is doing faced with this really nerve-wracking rise in prices and the impact it's having on the business. So, George, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. It must be a really unusual and difficult time to operate right now. Good morning, Susanna. Yes, it is. You know, I've been doing this for 40-odd years, and it's certainly the most challenging set of circumstances that I've ever faced. And I think you know, for many food companies, they'll be looking at the same thing right now. It's a, a little bit of a perfect storm, which the war in Ukraine has merely exacerbated. There's going to be lots to talk about and we look forward to finding out a bit more later in the podcast. We'll also chat to Sophie Lund-Yates, our lead equity analyst at HL, who's been looking at companies and how they've been affected by rising commodity prices. And we're going to hear from our head of investment analysis and research, Emma Wall, who's been talking to Thomas Wells, multi-asset fund manager at HL Fund Management, about the role of multi-asset investing. And Susanna's been building another quiz for me. And as requested, I finally get questions on food. Now, I'm pretty confident I can ace any questions just assuming they're about biscuits. They are. Some of them. Well, kind of. Find out more in a bit. But first, we're going to need to look a bit more closely at the commodities market. Yeah, it has been real chaos on the markets in the past couple of weeks after the invasion of Ukraine intensified and prices began spiking all over the place. Yes, already we've seen huge surges in wheat. So Ukraine and Russia together make up about 29% of the world's wheat exports. And the price of a bushel of wheat on international exchanges has surged because of the disruptions to supplies. And it's not just wheat. So Ukraine is the largest exporter of sunflower oil in the world. And it accounts for 13% of the global corn exports, having grown the industry rapidly over the last few years. 
And it isn't just the planting and harvesting that's been disrupted. Exports have also halted in many areas because ports have been closed with much of the autumn harvest still sitting in storage in Ukraine. And now the country has also banned exports of fertilisers to try and maintain the supply for its own farmers who can still plant. Fertiliser exports from Russia have also been disrupted, with restrictions put on exports and with cargo ships avoiding docking at Russian ports due to worries of sanction breaches. And in addition, soaring gas prices have led to fresh worries that plants in the UK, which make fertiliser, could be forced to shut or reduce operations and that could have a knock-on effect on the production of CO2, which is a byproduct of the industry, a gas used for vacuum-packing food and in abattoirs, for example. And then to add into this volatile mix, you have mounting fuel prices as well, with Brent crude still elevated, which is increasing transport and logistics costs. And all of these supply chain worries and concerns over rising costs really are weighing on the world's farmers and food producers. In developing nations, which are even more highly reliant on food imports, the situation could be even more severe. In Egypt, the world's largest wheat importer, food and beverage costs rose by more than 17% in February, with prices expected to rise even further. And this has all led to the United Nations to warn the world could be facing a major food crisis. And here in the UK, the most recent inflation figures show the cost of food is up 4.5% in the 12 months to January. But there were eye-watering rises in the price of everything from things like pasta to margarine, and margarine itself was up almost 40%. And there are warnings that as a result of rising commodity values, food prices are going to go up even more, by up to 15%. And all of this has been pretty unpalatable for policymakers at the Bank of England, which is one of the reasons why last week it voted to raise rates. And it's all feeding into this horrible cost of living squeeze, which is set to reach a pinch point in April when energy bills and tax hikes are added to the load. And shoppers are really feeling the pressure. We can't underestimate the impact on businesses too. Yes, all this risks turning into a cost of commerce crisis as well. The latest data from the ONS, the Office for National Statistics, showing worries about volatile commodity prices are causing anxiety among businesses. Three in five companies said they had concerns for the next month, with the cost of goods and services and energy prices causing particular stress. More than a third of construction companies said goods price inflation was a real concern, while overall, more than a fifth of firms said this was a worry. So just what is it like working in food distribution right now? Well, let's check in with George Phillips, who's commercial director of Oneness International Foods, which distributes a huge variety of food from rum cakes to coconut milk, and is having to deal with a rise in prices, which has turned from a mild headache into a severe migraine. So, George, can you sort of start by telling us a little bit about the business? We're an international food importer. We import from across the world. We have sort of two halves to our business, I suppose. We have brands of our own, and probably the leading brand we have is a brand called Tropical Sun, which is a world food brand. So we source products from all over the world under the Tropical Sun brand, but we also handle other people's brands in distribution, again, from all four corners of the world. We were founded in 1964, we're a family business and still a family business to this day. We distribute to pretty much everyone in the UK. So we distribute to small shops, supermarkets, wholesalers, food service, and we also have an export business as well, which is interesting in the current climate. So it's definitely been an interesting time for importing and exporting, and presumably shipping costs must have been such a headache. How have you sort of had to adapt to cope with that sort of thing? 
I suppose, if you like, where it all started was a combination of shipping costs and the pandemic. And I think, you know, they, the pandemic is still very evident in other markets. I mean, we seem to have rela- relaxed here, but uh, in a lot of the countries we source from, the pandemic's still very much alive. So there are restrictions around COVID. Um, and that contributed significantly to the container shortage. So at the end of the first lockdown, where pretty much there was a global lockdown, containers in the wrong place, um, ships not sailing, ports closed due to uh, curfews and restrictions. And that sort of escalated from there, particularly last year, to the sort of situation we see now. And I suppose a good example was container ship from the Far East, let's say China, in 2019 would have been about 1500 US dollars and it's anything up to 15000 now. Eye-watering price rises. And what about the situation in China currently with its zero COVID policy? There have been fresh mass lockdowns. Has that caused trouble for your business? We source from China, but it's not the major source of our of our products. But it is one of the, the countries we source from regularly. And I think the biggest impact we see is um, they've tightened up regulations on food in China. So, for example, a factory in China sourcing raw materials from somewhere else those products will be checked and go through COVID testing before they reach the production facility. Everything's then tested again post-production, and then you have the sort of battle of whether the ports are operating and whether the local transport system is operating. So it's more legislation, I think, because the Chinese authorities, as you say, have gone for this zero-tolerance approach. So there's a great deal more testing and blocks in the supply chain, which I think as much as anything apart from cost introduces delays. And I think a lot of importers, irrespective of whether it's food or anything else they bring from China, will be seeing this. And what impact have you seen on your business since the invasion of Ukraine with this commodity chaos really on many exchanges. How are you coping with that and what does it mean for your input prices? It's a European conflict, I guess, as everyone says, but actually it has a global impact. Closer to home, one of the things we have seen, quite apart from what you mentioned earlier about certain commodity products coming from Ukraine, For example, there's a severe shortage of um, transport in Eastern Europe because a great many of the truck drivers who drove the trucks from Eastern European countries, so for example, Poland, the Baltic states, Southeastern Europe, um, great many of the truck drivers were Ukrainian and of course they've either gone home to their families or they've gone to fight. On top of everything else, there's a significant difficulty in getting products from that part of Europe um, to the UK. In the main, our approach is actually, in the end, there's not a lot we can do about it. We have to work with it as best we can. So part of what we did when we knew that something was happening was we increased our stock holding in the UK. We have long established relationships with suppliers. So that to an extent has helped us because I think you know, there's been a mad scramble for supply in the last three to four weeks. So having very established suppliers with long trading relationships has definitely been a benefit because it means we've been able to keep at least some supply coming through. But I think there's no getting away from it. It's difficult and the prices are rising, if not daily, certainly weekly. And already you're passing on the price to your customers. Do you have little choice? 
how are you trying to manage with these higher input costs? It's a difficult one. And I think if I rewind the clock to, say, 12 months ago, where we saw the beginning of the container crisis, to begin with, we didn't because we felt this might be a short-term knock-on effect from the pandemic. So I think it's fair to say for the first maybe four or five months, we didn't pass on prices as a rule of thumb because we we felt and hoped that this would resolve itself prices would come back down and therefore for a while we'd be able to bridge that but what's become apparent 12 months down the line is actually we can't do it and I think you know many other companies probably took the same approach where they sort of sucked it and see for the first period but now I think with all the other factors coming in um, and especially what's going on in Ukraine, I think this is not going to be a short term episode. So we've had to start passing prices on. So in, in terms of price rises, has it meant a different balance of the sort of products that are in demand? Um, yes, it has. I mean, what we do, we have a very wide supply base because of the breadth of the product range we carry. Um, it's perhaps an advantage for a company like us. And many people would say having an enormous product range isn't an advantage, but actually at times like this it is because we have different options for sourcing. So um, one of the things, for example, sourcing from the Far East, and I'll pick a reasonable commodity product from the Far East, something like coconut milk. There are many origins for coconut milk. You know, Traditionally, we buy from one origin and one supplier, but we have the option to go elsewhere. So what we've tried to do is mitigate some of the delays and cost increases by resourcing elsewhere. In the end, the product cost is probably not going to be different, but there are certain origins that don't attract duty where they have a, a GS1 agreement with the UK. Um, so we've looked where we can um, to move to alternate sourcing simply to keep product availability and to try where we can to mitigate some of the, some of the worst price increases. But it's, yeah, it, it's an ongoing challenge and that, that approach won't last forever, I guess. And how are you dealing with the volatile energy prices, with oil again creeping up? What is your strategy here? The two most obvious areas of impact are one on um, incoming goods. So, for example, vehicles delivering to us, it's costing the, the hauliers more. And secondly, actually, is in our own distribution where we send goods out from our warehouse to our customers. And at present, I mean, to give a good example for a lot of the smaller deliveries we make, for the time being, we haven't increased our costs. What we've had to do is increase, for example, our minimum order value. So where in the past, for example, we might have delivered an order of £500, because of the cost increases now, we're asking customers to make an order of £1,000. We're trying to flex it that way in the short term. I think inevitably we'll get to a point where we can't keep doing that and we have to say, look, unfortunately, distribution costs will have to increase. How long have you been in the business and is this the most challenging period of time that you've been operating? Well, I joined Wally's International Foods two years ago, but I've uh, been in food retail and food sales for, without wishing to disclose my age in public, certainly since the mid-1980s. And we've had a few ups and downs since then. There's been several financial crises, one or two global events that have impacted the supply chain. But I think kind of going back to what I said at the beginning, this is something of a perfect storm. Individually, all the elements we've seen have been seen before. 
in some way, shape or form. For me, I've never seen anything where all of these factors have arrived at the same time. And I think that's the difference. And looking sort of to the future, can you see any light at the end of the tunnel? I wish I could confidently say so. I mean, I think if I look at some of the elements, if I think, do I think container prices will remain at this level forever? No. I think in the end, that element is subject to supply and demand. And I think when um, capacity catches up with demand, inevitably prices will fall. But I think food price inflation per se is here to stay, not necessarily at the level it is right now, but I think food price inflation is here to stay. Okay, well, George, thank you so much for sharing all your experience and just what it's like working in food production right now. A few rays of hope, but certainly seems as though they're quite far off on the horizon. But great to get an inside view on just what's happening. Susanna and Sarah, thank you very much for for having me. I hope I haven't been too much of a harbinger of doom. And I think all I'll say is, on behalf of the many other companies that do what we do, we will do our best and our very best to keep people supplied and to minimise some of the elements that we've talked about today. That's really good to hear. Well, let me bring in now our lead equity analyst, Sophie Lund-Yates, who's been looking at the impact of all this commodity chaos on listed companies as well. So, Sophie, um, let's drill down and and look at some of the the global giants. What are the prospects for firms like Nestle, given this environment? Hi, Susanna. Yes, absolutely. This is having a huge impact across the market um, and, and in particular on the giants, as you said, like Nestle. So its enormous scale and global footprint means that rising commodity prices are likely to have an effect on results at at some point. Um, We are waiting for the next load of uh, financial results. So keep in mind that Nestle makes everything from Kit Kats to Purina pet food um, with annual sales of around 82 billion Swiss francs. So absolutely huge. The interesting thing to keep in mind with Nestle, though, is that it has long been focused on increasing volumes more than prices to keep revenue moving. This is a strategy we tend to prefer because rising volumes um, is actually a lot easier than inflating prices over and over again in general. However, in order to keep the top line moving, it's worth keeping in mind that Nestle may have to start pushing prices up at a faster rate than its customers are used to. Um, And there is a tipping point at which point higher prices are going to start eating into volumes. The essential nature of a lot of Nestle's products, as well as the strong brands from things like Starbucks ready to drink items, of which I am too much of a fan, means there is definitely an element of pricing power. But sustained inflation could see the group's long-held volume-led approach become a little bit harder to to maintain. So I will be watching that one. Uh, Alluding there to your caffeine (laughs) fixes. Uh, Thanks, Sophie. I'd like to move on to Tate and Lyle. And we're not necessarily talking sugar fixes here, are we, with Tate and Lyle? Because the business really has moved on. Yes, exactly. So a lot of people um, still associate Tate and Lyle with things like golden syrup, sugar, treacle. Um, but Tate and Lyle doesn't actually make these anymore. Um, instead, it's focused on ingredients like sweeteners and thickeners and all the components that go into kind of lower calorie foods to help replicate so-called mouthfeel. That's one of their key metrics. So if you take all the fats out of a, a Greek yogurt is a good way to think about this. It needs a bit of a helping hand from somewhere and some form of ingredient to get the right consistency back. And Tate and Lyle also also has some larger bulk commodity businesses. 
The group is in line to feel the impact of rising commodity prices because a lot of replacement sugar products like sucralose come from cornstarch. So as you were talking about earlier, Ukraine is a large exporter of wheat and corn, meaning the crisis is pushing the prices of these items up. And at the moment, Tate and Lyle can renew some major contracts, which gives it a level of, of guaranteed revenue because it knows what's what's coming up revenue wise. But if costs soar at a really rapid rate, margins you know may well come under pressure. I would just say that we're still very supportive of Tate and Lyle's strategy, which has included getting rid of less profitable sides of the business. Um, but inflation, a bit like Nestle, is, is definitely one to watch. And certainly shoppers are watching inflation with a lot of trepidation hoping to find cheaper prices on the shelves. And all of this is having impact on the big grocers as well, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. It's really important that when we're talking about this, we're not just looking at those manufacturing and, and making the goods, but but those that are trying to then sell them to the likes of you and me. And unsurprisingly, those rising commodity prices mean it's simply more expensive for grocers to put food on the shelves, um, which is why ultimately us as customers are, are seeing higher prices, which you know we, we've spoken about a lot. It's a really tough balancing act for supermarkets to get it right because price is obviously a huge factor these days in where customers choose to shop, kind of more so than than it has been in, in previous generations. Um, so hike prices too much and you risk losing sales, but don't put prices up enough and you're, you're putting all of the onus on, on volumes, which is a difficult ask for a supermarket. We think getting this right is, is tricky for Sainsbury, particularly when, when we're looking at the grocers, um, because it has traditionally occupied a middle ground. So if you think about it as, a, as its proposition, it's, it's not renowned for being the best value. But it also doesn't have the same defensive properties as, say, maybe M&S Food or Waitrose, whose customers may not flinch as much at the sight of inflation. I do have to admit, though, it's not all negative for Sainsbury's. You know, it's done a great deal of work on its proposition and and trying to redefine itself as being good value. So it's doing things like an Aldi price comparison campaign. And it's been really impressive, the results there. I personally really wasn't expecting a profit upgrade the last time they reported results. So that was great to see. But there are potential pressure points for margins which is, I know I'm kind of repeating myself, but it's just true, the, the board over. The group has done well to massively increase its, its online capacity, I should also mention, but this comes with huge costs. So those costs are also likely to recur for a little while. At the same time, the decision to focus on lowering those prices means that if volumes don't keep pace, profits are going to suffer. That isn't a problem at the moment, but it is something that we're wary of kind of in the in the medium term. Thanks, Sophie. It seems as they will be reeling from these rising commodity prices for some time to come. Now I'd like to bring in Emma Wall, our Head of Investment Research and Analysis here at Hargreaves Lansdowne, who's been speaking to Thomas Wells, multi-asset fund manager at HL Fund Management, about the role of multi-asset investing. Hi, Thomas. Hi, Emma. How are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you? Good, thanks. Uh, Nice to meet you. So we're here today to talk about the market environment. I think first and foremost, we should say that, you know, our thoughts are with the people affected by the war in Ukraine. And it has had an impact on global markets. Investment is a difficult thing to talk about at a time like this. But ultimately, people are trying to see through the noise, how do they manage money through this uncertainty. I thought we'd start by just quickly recapping what's happened so far this year, because even before the war in Ukraine, it had been quite a turbulent time for markets, hadn't it? Yes, uh, very much so. And we came into the year expecting the Fed, so the Federal Reserve, that's the central bank in America, to start hiking interest rates. Um, Actually, they hiked today for the first time. 
The Bank of England, obviously, is raising interest rates. And in such an environment, investors were nervous about certain parts of the market that uh, were perceived as being overvalued, what we call growth stocks. And you were seeing quite a strong style rotation away from these uh, growth stocks towards more value stocks. So if you think about it from a sector perspective, it means there was a big shift away from technology um, in America towards more energy stocks in the UK. And then, of course, we had um, the Russia invasion of Ukraine, which caused considerable market uncertainty and particularly areas of the market which were impacted by the outlook of commodities being very unsure. And so because of Russia and Ukraine supplying so much of the world's gas, the world's oil, but also soft commodities like wheat, like corn, we've seen that area of the market really rocket in price, haven't we? Yes, very much so. So coming into the Ukraine situation, we obviously had high levels of inflation and the invasion of Ukraine by Russia has just simply made that inflation concerns even higher now as uh, we're worried about um, potential oil supply, wheat supply, and that's going to feed through into what people are going to have to pay uh, at the pump for petrol, what people are going to have to pay to heat their houses. It's certainly having a material impact upon prices and indirectly on um, consumer confidence. And what have equities and fixed income done in this market uncertainty. We've talked there about commodities, which have done incredibly well, if you can call it that, those those incredible price rallies. What about the rest of the market, other assets? As you said, uh, the word uncertainty. Markets do not like uncertainty. Investors do not like uncertainty. So when uncertainty increases, as we've seen, risk assets, so things like equity, often go down because people are scared, people are worried. Fixed income has also been going down as investors are expecting the central banks to raise interest rates to try and control for inflation. So fixed income assets have been going down as well. So the only thing that has been going up in this um, bout of uncertainty is the commodity assets that you mentioned earlier. So the oil, the uh, soft commodities like wheat and also gold. Uh, Gold has performed very well. Now, you run multi-asset portfolios, which you, means you blend all of that together for long-term outcomes. When you're looking at a multi-asset portfolio at a time like this, what are you looking for? What is that power of diversification hoping to achieve? I think today things are extremely volatile. A good example is last Wednesday, um, the European equity markets went up 7%. Yesterday, the um, parts of the Asian Chinese equity market went up 30%. So I think as an investor today, whether it be a multi-asset investor or uh, as a retail investor, the most important thing to do today is probably do nothing. And I know that sounds like a strange thing. Um, So uh, if I'm advocating doing nothing, but given how volatile things are at the moment, um, often if you try and um, be too clever, you'll get things wrong. So from, from, from our perspective, from a multi-asset perspective, I think now is the time to think about your long-term asset allocation. What level of equity risk is suitable for your risk profile? Uh, how much fixed income is suitable for your risk profile? And actually just migrate back to that long-term asset allocation. So what we're doing in a portfolio today, we're not panicking. We're not selling. We're not dramatically buying either. 
we're holding back, we're looking to the long term and we're allocating to both our equity and our fixed income and recognising that these are long-term investments and trying to look through this current turbulence as best we can. And I think that's really interesting that both as a professional investor and as a retail investor, you know, the individual on the street, the same approach is the most sensible one in times of uncertainty. And that often is just, as you say, hold fast and focus on the long term. I went to a conference last week and spoke to somebody who invests in fixed income, in bonds, and also in the commodity area. And they said, you know, thinking about it, Inflation is really hard to navigate at the moment. Uncertainty is really hard to navigate at the moment. But in three years' time, we probably won't be looking at inflation of around 8% in, you know, or double digits. We probably won't be looking at oil prices, which are as high as they are now. So therefore, if your investment horizon is longer than three years, stay focused on that. Stay focused on what you started investing for in the first place, because this, although it's really difficult, is transitory in the investment markets. Um, I think that's a very, very, very good point. As Charlie Munger, sort of the uh, right-hand man to uh, Warren Buffett, uh, is a big advocate of not trying to tie markets. Um, he always says that you know, if, you, if you sell an asset, um, that's one decision. Then you have to think about when to buy the asset again. That's another decision. The more decisions you're trying to make and the smarter you're trying to be, often you end up making lots of mistakes. So his view, and that's based on uh, 70, 80 years of investing, is to look through the noise, to remember the fact that you're investing for the long term and to um, not panic. And that served him well. And I, I believe it will serve our investors well as well. Thomas, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks, Emma. Well, that was Emma Wall, our Head of Investment Research and Analysis at Hargreaves Lansdowne there, talking to Thomas Wells, Multi-Asset Fund Manager at HL Fund Management. And that interview was recorded on the 17th of March. And please bear in mind that these are the views of the fund manager and not individual stock recommendations. You're listening to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. And finally, it's time for the quiz. So I've been promised questions on food. I've been researching this particular area in quite a lot of detail for a long time. Well, I'm glad you've been enjoying all the research because in the last podcast, you did ask for questions on chocolate. So I assume that's where you've been focusing all of your studying. So we'll start there. Okay, Sarah. Chocolate is the second most exported food and drink item from the UK after whiskey. But within the UK, what's the most popular chocolate bar? Oh, fantastic. You see, definitely started me on an easy one here because I know this one is dairy milk, which I do always think is a bit odd given there are Maltesers in the world, but eh, there's no accounting for tastes. You are right. Yes, it is indeed dairy milk. And that was pretty easy, I suppose, for you anyway, given that you're such a connoisseur. Interestingly, Maltesers didn't make the top three because that was made up of Galaxy and then Lindor. I must admit, I am a massive Lindor fan. I've become slightly obsessed with Lindor. keep finding them rolling around the back of the sofa (laughs) (laughs) after Christmas. But anyway, let's move on. Let's stick with topics you've specifically requested. We are now on to baking and biscuits. 
So the UK flour milling industry produces almost 5 million tonnes of flour every year and an enormous amount of this goes into baking. We make around 12 million loaves of bread and 2 million pizzas a day. But how many cakes and biscuits do we make? And I'm going to give this to you as a multiple choice. Is it 5 million, 10 million or is it 48 million cakes of biscuits? I know I eat more biscuits than I eat loaves of bread. It probably is about four times as many, so it probably is 48 million cakes and biscuits. You certainly do have a sweet tooth, don't you, Sarah? No, it seems our appetite for biscuits isn't quite that big. We make 10 million cakes and biscuits. But don't worry, you can still call this back because we're sticking with bread. And just uh, anecdotally, according to the Federation of Bakers, around three quarters of the bread we eat in the UK is white. And sandwiches are thought to make up half of all the bread we eat in the UK. There we are. But anyway, Sarah, I want to ask you, how many loaves of bread do you think we eat on average each year per person? And I'll take your answer to the nearest 10. <laughs> well, I have a feeling I eat more than my fair share of bread as well. So I, oh, I probably have half a loaf a week. So I'll round it up and say 30 loaves a year. No, you're wrong. The answer is 43. So even more. We do love our bread, don't we? Now on to crisps. I think this is another area that you're quite an expert in. So Walker's is the biggest crisp manufacturer in the UK. But how many bags of crisps do you think it fills every day in its Leicester factory? And I will let you have, say, uh, two million either way. Well, I know this is going to be a lot because it is a massive factory. But it is going to have to be a wild guess. So I'll say 10 million Ah, that's pretty good. It's 11 million. So I, I'm going to give you that because I did say 2 million either way. You're clawing <laughs> it back, Sarah. Right, for your final question, I'm giving you the typical politician test question. Do you know how much a pint of milk costs? I know how much I spend on milk because I I've, I've get it delivered in glass bottles. So I, when I order online, it actually shows me the price. So I know at the moment it's actually 84p per pint. I'm going to have to give you that, aren't I? Although it is nowhere near the average for a pint, which the ONS puts at 46 pence. So you are paying a pretty big premium for delivery and plastic-free milk bottles, although it probably doesn't help that you're buying it by the pint because, of course, four pint containers do tend to be much cheaper. Blimey, that is a lot. It's, it's going to be another one of those shopping around rows to have with my husband. I think we're already spending a good chunk of our time arguing about whether or not we should have the heating on. So I think, well, I guess this will mix things up. <laughs> Sounds like a riveting chat. Although at least you'll be able to boast that you got three answers right in the quiz, which is your best so far. And you were right. You just needed questions about chocolate. So I think you should reward yourself by opening a bar. <laughs> I think I think all that talk of Lindor, I think I might need to. <laughs> Well, that is all from us for this time. But before we go, we do need to remind you that this was recorded on the 21st of March 2022 and all information was correct at the time of recording. Nothing in this podcast is personal advice. You should seek advice if you're not sure what's right for you. Investments rise and fall in value so you could get back less than you invest and past performance isn't a guide to the future. 
Yes, this is not advice or a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any investment. No view is given on the present or future value or price of any investment and investors should form their own view on any proposed investment. And this hasn't been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research and is considered a marketing communication. Non-independent research is not subject to FCA rules prohibiting dealing ahead of research. However, HL has put controls in place, including dealing restrictions, physical and information barriers to manage potential conflicts of interest presented by such dealing. You can see our full non-independent research disclosure on our website for more information. So all that's left is for me to thank our guests, George, Sophie, Emma and Thomas, and our producer, Elizabeth Hodson. And thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again soon. So if you did enjoy this podcast, please do let us know what you think and do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You get a fresh new episode in your inbox as soon as it's ready. Goodbye.